The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales. Episode 44, Drumley Times. Time stood still during Koschei's release from imprisonment was inaccurate. Rather paradoxically, time stood to attention, awaiting the pleasure of one for whom its existence meant nothing. Isabel rose and stood transfixed, watching as all her careful months of cataloging and analysis were undone. The fossils and samples swirled into the egg's downward path, exploding upwards in a pattern something like two extended wings, even as the crystal egg shattered. None of the lab animals moved or made a sound. On the nearest border of Tirnanog, the swan of endless tails had been singing near Janet's hearth, for that was Jack's mother's name. She had been making tea for her brother Diarmid, who had dropped in to see what needed doing about the place, and quietly busied himself with the simple beauty of domestic magic, making the perfect cabin even more so, and watching his sister out of the corner of his eye, to make sure she was getting on all right. At the moment Koschei's soul was released, the swan fell silent for the time it took eternity to flex its wings. I'll have to be getting back after tea, Jeanie, he said, reasoning that impending global calamity was no reason to cut short the observance of the niceties, but that new window will show the starlight fair. He watched his sister pour the tea. Why do you always hot the pot? That's such a Scottish habit. He shook his head, accepting a cup from her hand. I always thought myself the child of travelers. I can accept that I am sister to a tinker, even the tinker of the gods. I hot the pot, brother dear, because even in the smallest tasks, there are ways of doing things. You may be a god, but we are not uncivilized. Diarmid laughed. He loved his sister dearly, and he was glad to have made a place for her. And for all his millennia of otherworldly wisdom, he'd just been schooled. After they had finished, he unfolded himself from her chair and kissed her cheek, putting his battered hat on his head and turning to go. I'll be back soon, and I'll bring the boy. See that you do, or there'll be hell to pay, Janet warned, trying unsuccessfully to look and sound fierce, her rosy cheeks dimpling. Hell I can handle, Diarmid said cheerily over his shoulder, departing. It's her of the bloody thrice tenth kingdom I'm not sure about, he thought to himself. But Koschei's back. The playing field was more level now, though the game would still be wild. Back in the lab, Isabel saw the glittering and ancient fragments form first into a dragon, then into a man. As the immortal looked at her, Isabel suddenly understood the phrase to love the very bones of someone. 
he made a small gesture with his hands, as if holding a tiny bird, and Isabel swooned, caught in Rosamond's arms. It was a kindness for now. She'd never forget him, but she wouldn't exactly remember either. She'd also seen nothing amiss with the lab samples, and she'd have new insights for her dissertation. Rosamond appeared before Koschei in a vintage red dress, impossible black stilettos, and a smart black hat with a half veil over her face that only looked like a web if you blinked. The deathless one didn't blink. He smiled. Raista, the sight of you is truly good for the soul. Nice to see you too, honey. Come on, we've got a lot to do. She's coming after this one next, and Isabel's mine. Vasily is going to help her young man. And the witch already killed her friend's mother. Just for fun. Can you believe it? Of course I can. Shall I give her something to dream about so she wakes with the story she understands? Koshche asked, looking at Isabel. The Deathless One was skilled in dreams of all kinds, though he was usually only given credit for nightmares. Yes, something protective, something about selfless good. Koshche leaned close to Isabel's ear and whispered, House spirit. Perfect, Rosamond approved. We'll talk in the Vale. It's private. Moot's there. I have something of a standing invitation. Rosamond explained as she took Koshche's arm. She enveloped them both in a shimmering web of ones and zeros, and they disappeared. When Isabel woke up, the lab seemed undisturbed. Something had happened, but she wasn't sure what. The animals were chattering nonsense about a bone dragon born from glass. She looked towards Rosamond's cage, but the spider had recently put up new curtains. She was probably sleeping. Even the queen needed her beauty sleep. Isabel looked around the lab and the adjoining rooms that formed her home in these strange times. She thought of Professor Lyle, how kind he'd been to make arrangements for her. They met every fortnight by video conference to check Isabel's progress, and she had Lucas and Jack to trade stories with and talk to, but she was lonely. She couldn't remember what life had been like before lockdown, before masks, before the fear of contagion, even though she was young. Her mother had died young, bringing Isabel into the world. Youth wasn't really armor against anything, even if she'd supposedly immortal blood. She could still be killed, still die of disease. What mark would she leave in the world? What had she done? She hoped her dissertation would tell the world, I was here and while I was, I thought deeply about... But would anyone care? Dark thoughts summoned an image of her brother, as they almost always did. She banished them with a vision of Jock, the bruni that lived for a time in their ancestral pile, making sure it didn't come tumbling fashionably down around their heads. That is, until Lilith tried to give the poor little beggar charity, complaining loudly that some people just didn't know when to be grateful with the clothes she tried to force on him, some of Owen's more nautical absurdities from when he was small. Jock was the best worker and the best company. He knew all the old tales and ballads as though he'd lived through half and composed the rest. Oh, Jock, Isabel sighed, I'd find a wee warm corner for you here if you came seeking work like Aiken Drum. And then she had her story. 
Contentious politics and pandemics had played out in children's nursery rhymes for centuries, the world over. But though the names seemed to have been attached to everything from partisan slander to harmless nonsense, she would tell the tale she knew of Aiken Drum. She hoped against hope that by telling it, Jock might come to know of it, and if he didn't return, perhaps he might at least approve of her telling. Her audience gathered in the little cottage by the sea that she had described before, the kind of place she loved and felt most at home. Welcome all, she began. As you know, I drew an inauspicious card last round, but rather than worry about what I may lose, I have decided to tell you a tale about a kind of creature we have that does only good and seeks nothing in return, save for the barest hospitality. No wages, no livery, just the simplest food and a warm corner to sleep in. These are brownies or brunies, and while some cultures have house spirits that can be mischievous or even vengeful against those they are compelled to serve, ours are generally gruff but kindly. This, then, is the tale of the brownie of Blednoch. But when I was a child, it was told to me by one who could have experienced meeting this wee creature, or indeed have been he himself. Once there came to our village a curious stranger. He was small and very ugly, with a large head, small coal-black eyes, and a mouth so large it seemed able to swallow the world or shout it down. His legs were twisted as if he'd had rickets as a lad, and he was indeed no bigger than a child, for all his long, wild beard. "'Have ye nay work for Aiken Drum?' he sang out, beating a rhythm on two sticks, his little oaken drum. At first, no one in the village said a word. It was as if we were all tongue-tied or fey. Only the children gabbled with abandon at the wee man, and he gathered them round him, answering all their questions and singing a song or telling any story they asked for, making up on the spot those he didn't know. By and by, Granny Mackay came forward to speak to the wee man, asking whether he was demon, fairy, or sprite, and demanding that he answer true in God's name. I can't take a name that isn't mine, and mine is Aiken Drum, he said. Have you work for me? Granny Mackay was widowed, and none of her sons had stayed home to help her, preferring to seek their fortunes away from the croft, she said. Aye, I've space for you in the house, and you can eat at my table. What else would you have for wages? I'll be glad of the extra hands. I'll not stay in thy house, replied the wee man. Have ye a barn? Aye, or space that you can build a bothy to your requirements, and wood, stone, and tools. The barn will do, closer to my work, the little man said. What do you like to eat? the kindly old woman asked. I don't keep a fancy table, but my lads always said I was a good cook. Bros, came the reply. Bros is a kind of steeped oatmeal gruel or broth, Isabel explained. The grain isn't even really cooked. It's the simplest of fare. I should hope that even in my leanest times I can see you better fed than that, the good woman laughed. It's all I'll have from thee for food, the stranger said. Granny agreed to these rather spartan terms, and Aiken Drum took up residence in her old barn, which he kept tidy as a pin. He started work right away, and soon her house was in fine repair and her little farm fairly hummed with prosperity. 
Granny, being herself, once she had what she required to sustain herself and sold or traded what she needed for supplies she couldn't make, she gave the rest to family and friends and neighbors in need. Soon the wee man had her roster of chores so well in hand, he did the rounds of the village and became indispensable to all. In the evenings, though, he would return to Granny's hearth and sit with her for a time, trading songs and tales, until it was time to go out to his lodging in the barn. Of all the work he did for her and her neighbors, the greatest service Drum did for any of the villagers was to ease their toil with talk and laughter, the secret the children read in him from the moment he set foot in the parish. There came a day, though, when a young wife named Esme decided to smarten Drumly up a bit, for so the children nicknamed him in jest, since he was anything but dark and drear. He was, as I've said, rather hairy, spindle-shanked, and very unprepossessing, except when his black eyes twinkled or when he told a story. Then in his voice and bearing he was the dashing hero, the fearless prince, or the ruthless pirate, as the tale demanded. Now, Esme was from Edinburgh, and didn't so much think herself better than everyone else as know it for gospel. She could do nothing about his physical shortcomings, but he seemed always nearly naked, wearing only a kilt of rushes he wove himself. He refused all offer of warmer or more decent attire. This is what we wear in my land, and it has so far served me well enough in yours, Drumley had politely asserted. Somehow, Esme got it into her head that although Drumley would take no alms, charity was not charity if one gave what was barely worth throwing away. Accordingly, she paid a visit to Granny Mackay one afternoon and slipped out to the barn, leaving an old pair of her husband's breeches for the little man, hardly worth the effort to turn into rags, let alone mend. When Drumley came home that night from his various jobs around the village, he let out a wail of despair. Granny came running out to the barn as fast as she could, thinking that the little man had done himself a mortal injury of some kind. So raw was the pain in his cry. When she saw the old breeches, she was furious. That, Esme, what an insult, leaving her man's old rags for you. She's got no sense and no heart. I've a good mind to let her know the true worth of her generosity. It's not because the clothing isn't new or fine. It's because my work wasn't valued as freely given. So now I must go, Aiken Drum lamented. And with a tear in his eye, he said farewell and disappeared never to return. And though Granny, too, is long gone, some of the children stayed in the village to raise their own families, and so Drumley's songs and stories live on through new generations. May they never be forgotten. The Decameron shuffled, four of spades. You can't get enough of me, you poor fools, Baba Yaga signed off. Isabel, are you okay, Lucas asked. You kind of went silent on us before. Something happened, I think, but I can't quite recall what. It was like a dream, a strange dream. So much is right now, Jack agreed. Isabel looked up and her waking dream turned into a nightmare. Into the private channel, Isabel typed just an O 
before a delicate hand, very like her own, closed over hers and took away her phone. She looked up into her malevolent mirror image. Hello, sis, her brother said. The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales, is an original work by Shauna Kozar, all rights reserved. Shauna gratefully acknowledges that she lives and works in a beautiful, storied place, the ancestral lands of the Snamuk First Nation, and that she crafts her tales thanks to the support of the Canada Council.